0: art dad doesn't like i'm lizzie
1: and i'm beat
0: and this is a podcast where we look at a range of contemporary and modern artworks and test them against dad's very particular tastes
1: yes i um seem to i think that this episode is going to be quite interesting because it has historical art in it and i generally find that i prefer the earlier art to the later art the more contemporary art becomes the less palatable it is So I hope there'll be a healthy focus on not so contemporary art.
0: But do you not agree with the, you're a traditionalist in some cases, don't you agree with the traditional view of history that there's a development of mankind over time? Isn't that what uh, that author who wrote The End of History was going on? about? We shouldn't think about history that way?
1: Francis Fukuyama, yes, uh, everyone thought that history had ended with the end of the Cold War, but it was not to be the case. In fact, I rather think of Lord Acton's famous definition of history as one damn thing after another. Uh, it's, it seems to be ceaseless. Uh, yes, I, I think that we should try and be progressive and make the... Present better than the past and the future present better than the present. But I think that unfortunately in the art world, that isn't often the case.
0: Well, we'll test it out against this piece. Maybe with its strong historical roots, you'll find it acceptable. Um, the subject of today's podcast is called Self-Portrait in the Studio at Peckham after Steenwick the Younger 2 from 2014 to 15. By the artist Rakib Shaw.
1: Yes, and opening this picture, I on the internet, I expected to see a picture of someone who had painted themselves, but instead, I see this really bizarre scene um, of figures in a Renaissance-type setting with arches, pillars, and a good perspective through them but the centerpiece is a horrible little skeleton uh sitting in the middle of a courtyard and different motifs some of them quite ghastly horrible bat and insect-like creatures up on the arch a devil mask at the top and it seems uh, a bottles of champagne there's some nice flowers but everything has an air of collapse and decay and the central skeleton with its horrible grimace is very frightening and it seems to be surrounded by little red figures I can't quite make out what they are uh yeah so it's it's not a a tranquil picture to look at
0: no but it's very interesting very detailed I mean you also referred to the idea of collapse I mean Are you referring to moral decay, moral collapse? Because I don't know that I necessarily see that that much. It's more of a flurry of things in this maximalist visual style.
1: Yes, but the centrality, perhaps, I don't know whether it's moral collapse, but perhaps I'm thinking too much back to one of the pictures that we did last week, The Triumph of Death which had this very grim ambiance about it. And here, although we do have an interesting picture with some nice things in, the overwhelming impression you get is perhaps not collapse, but a frightening end to something with the little skeleton in the front and all the other rather menacing creatures Up up above it. So maybe it's not a a collapse, but it's certainly an unhappy denouement.
0: Finally, an end to history. No more damn things, (laughs) one after another. (laughs) That should make you happy.
1: Well, no, I like history and I like charting its progress. I I can't imagine how history would ever stop. Uh, So, but this history seems to have had a very sad ending. It's not a a happy or paradisical ending. It's a grotesque ending. And I don't know why it's called self portrait unless the artist himself sees himself as being this figure uh, which is deceased and which has perhaps led a dissolute life.
0: Well, I do think that in the image, that central figure of the skeleton which has sort of Jazz hands, like he's posing in the middle of a dance, is the so called self portrait. But I tend to think that the title of the work, Self Portrait in the Studio, and then after Steenwick, I mean, after being in the style of, he's drawing on two quite common naming conventions for artworks. So I'm not sure if that title is more a reference to general art history or not, but before we get into the details of this work, you mentioned that perhaps your view of this work is tainted or affected by some of the works we discussed last week, and someone you mentioned last week was Jan Bruegel, who was a famous Flemish artist, uh, and Peter Bruegel, was his father. And we're talking here about Peter and Jan Bruegel, both the elder, because they were also the youngers. I don't know what the plural of that would be, of both of those names, brothers and sons, respectively. So you don't need to worry about them at the moment. Just for reference, we're talking about the elder ones, which you should like.
1: Yeah, well I'm I'm quite fascinated by these pairs of the elder and the younger, like Cato the Elder, Cato the Younger, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger. So uh, it's interesting to see how different um, abilities and strengths and traits persist in families.
0: Yes, well, it can be quite terrifying when I look at some of your traits and I hope <laughs> I haven't inherited them. Um, <laughs> but Jan Bruegel had a follower Called, maybe we're going to have to make a little map here for the listeners. But Jan Bruegel had a follower named Hendrik van Steen, Steenwick the Younger, who is the Steenwick that is being referred to by Rakib Shaw here. So the painting that's being referred to in this title by Rakib Shaw after Steenwick the Younger is referring to a painting which is in the National Gallery in London where Shaw lives called, well, dealing with the subject of Croesus and Solon, which was painted around 1610. And I'm sure you would like to be as rich as Croesus, so I'm sure you know that story.
1: Yes, wasn't Croesus the person who uh, was very acquisitive and was granted a wish i'm not sure if this is accurate and he his wish was that everything that he would touch should turn to gold and of course it became a curse
0: no that was midas
1: was that midas oh another gold lover an I auriferous think, lover
0: i'm sure they're different people but maybe my mythology is not bad you were alive no, to no i think you're times. right you should remember uh <laughs> This rich king was also very acquisitive. So he was a rich king in ancient Lydia and he loved being wealthy and was always on the lookout for new things. A very luxurious lifestyle. But then a wise man named Solon came to visit his kingdom. And so Croesus is walking around his palace showing off all of his stuff to Solon. And he asked Solon if he had ever seen greater opulence than this. And Solon replied, you know, being polite, that birds like peacocks, which Croesus had, and I know you have your problems with peacocks not showing off their feathers, which we've mentioned before in this podcast, are incomparable in their beauty, as long as you throw some gravel at them to get them to show their tail. <laughs> um, And so... Croesus said, you know, forget the birds. He instead said, look at this list of all these peoples I've vanquished and I've claimed all of their territories. Don't you think that that's really impressive, that that is the greatest achievement? You know, I have all this money and I have all these achievements, but Solon still disagrees and tells Croesus that the happiest man he ever met was a peasant in Athens. And this peasant had worked very hard raised a family and was just happy with what he had. But Croesus took this as an insult, so Solon left. But what do you, do you, now that you've heard that part of the story, do you remember what happened next?
1: Well, Croesus was defeated in war and he all his wealth, of course, came to naught. And so the fact was that his wealth couldn't save him it's almost redolent of that bible story of the man of great wealth and who god says well you don't know but tonight you're going to be death is coming for you and the wealth doesn't know provides no benefit to him so and of course solon was reputed to be athens first lawgiver and as you say a person of great wisdom so there's a moral fable here that Accumulation of goods on this earth doesn't bring happiness in the long run.
0: Yeah, and you know, though, so that's true that all of Croesus' wealth <laughs> came to nothing. So he was the emperor who'd vanquished him, had him ready to be burned on a pyre, but then he cried out Solon's name. So this emperor, Empress Cyrus, stopped the pyre, and because he wanted to hear what Croesus had to say. And Croesus related this story about Solon's visit to Cyrus. And Cyrus was moved, although this sounds a bit like schadenfreude to me, moved by the notion that fate can bring misery to a rich man and happiness to a poor man. So he freed Croesus and then apparently they became friends, although I think that would be quite hard after what had happened to poor Croesus.
1: Well, I suppose given that Croesus' escaped being executed, it shows the benefits of being a great raconteur because it can mm. save your life.
0: Yeah. So maybe that's more what he picked up from Solon as a first lawgiver, the lawyer's gift of the gab more than the wisdom. Yes.
1: Something that puzzles me about these pictures, and I've noticed it often in medieval representations of either mythological stories or biblical stories, is that they didn't, pay any attention to the costuming of the people as they would have been. Now, I don't know if they didn't know what sort of costuming ancient people in the ancient world wore, but they persisted in dressing them up in medieval or Renaissance robes. Do you know why that is?
0: Well, this one is, a, as you say, Renaissance rather than medieval work. By the Renaissance, obviously, because they were making – I mean, I say archaeological, but proto-archaeological discoveries, but discovering ancient statues and things from classical times, they would have known from the sculpture work, at least, how they dressed. I think, though, that when they make the choice to show them not in classical robes, I think, although if any listeners can correct me, please do, that it's partly an attempt to make what's being seen relatable to the God audience maybe. by putting them in these clothes. It's like in the Marie Antoinette movie when they have her tie on Converse shoes to make her yes. make the point that she was a teenager. Yeah. Like any teenager now. So, in this painting of Croesus and Solon, though. It, it captures them at the point where they're having this dispute about happiness. And what do you see in that painting, this original one from the National Gallery?
1: Well, it's a very opulent scene. There are books, bound books on the shelves. And again, that's an anachronism, but it signals wealth because of course, only the wealthy could afford to have books as well as beautiful flowers. There's also a, uh, an astrolabe which was one of the things that people used for navigation of course and would have been indicative of their accumulation of wealth from overseas there's a brightly colored parrot another thing that you don't usually find in the netherlands although again stand to be corrected gold cups and plates uh and jewelry scattered about on a table so clearly a person who is enormously successful in the material sense.
0: Yeah, so you have all of those signals of wealth that would have been common in the Renaissance transported back to the times of Croesus and Solon, Uh, the very typical, I guess, miniaturisation of a Dutch still life of flowers in the corner. So very opulent scene for those times, and that's what – uh, Rakib Shaw is also drawing on in this opulent scene that he paints. But mainly, the main reference to the scene, to my eye, to this painting, is that Renaissance perspective, that classical interior with the arches. That's what you see most clearly in Shaw's painting.
1: Oh, yes. So that's the common feature of to both the... Uh, arch within an arch, and as as we have said, the, the really excellent perspective. Is, is there a reason why Rakib decided to paint his self-portrait in the setting? Was there a reason for his drawing upon the painting from the, the Flemish artist?
0: Well, I think... There are a few reasons which we can get into. Obviously, he was exposed to this work by seeing it at the National Gallery because he was born in Calcutta in 1974 but moved to the UK in 1998. So he's obviously seen this work and been around it. But I think to fully understand why he's drawing on this painting, we have to talk about more paintings and more painters in this line that I've referred to before. So moving backwards, we have Shaw, who draws on Steenwick, who drew on Jan Bruegel, who was his his teacher, who yes. was the son of Peter Bruegel. And Peter Bruegel made prints for someone with the unfortunate name of Hieronymus Cock,
1: who... Right.
0: <laughs> who... So Bruegel was making these prints for Koch and many of these prints adopted the mannerisms of another Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch. And in fact, Koch sold some of these Bruegel works as Bosch works, uh, falsely signing them in his name, but that's an aside. But I think that this work by uh, Shaw is actually more reminiscent of these Hieronymus Bosch paintings. So are you familiar with the Garden of Earthly Delights?
1: Well, I've become familiar with it after you sent me the link, and it is a rather ghastly picture. I've seen Bosch pictures before, and I can't remember the first time I ever saw one, but I thought that they were modern paintings, funnily enough, using medieval figures in them i had no idea that they were paintings from what the 15th or 15th century and the this particular painting that you sent me um the garden of earthly delights is a triptych and uh, it's got two side panels and a central one and the side ones are about half the size of the central one and this side panel on the left shows creation in the garden of eden with god and adam and eve the middle one shows the garden of earthly delights with the same garden because you can see the same sort of fountain shape in it and people engaging in you know drinking and having sex and uh floating around in pools and um playing musical instruments and then on the right there are there is hell which is and this is really why having seen other bosch pictures i thought that he was a modern artist is because it really does look like surrealism you've got very strange figures that you know you don't know whether they're bodily organs or bagpipes you've got an ear with a feather stuck through it you've got this horrible um egg-like thing with which is open and there's objects in it you've got um people being tortured you've got a grotesque bird sitting on a throne and strange musical instruments and above it is a very dark flaming city so when i as i say first saw bosch i thought it was a very modern picture and i had no idea that this sort of stuff went through people's minds <laughs> during the Renaissance.
0: Well, maybe you should revise some of your opinions about contemporary art then and your retrograde idea of history as a slow progression towards development because obviously surrealism, which you talk down about so much, has echoes, I mean, this isn't a surrealist work in the way that we use that term, but has echoes, the craziness, back in the Renaissance?
1: Yeah, well, you know, now we're getting into sort of time travel paradoxes, aren't we? (laughs) Did the the Renaissance foresee the uh, works by the surrealists? But it's, it's, it's completely at odds with the portraits, the still life, the landscapes that you usually see from this period and i don't i think bosch must have been an extremely unusual person to have visualized this because yes you know we've seen last week again that the triumph of death which is also to some extent grotesque but at least the figures are visibly of human beings here we've got creatures that are are not human and objects that are are not human arranged in very frightening ways do you know anything about why this trend existed
0: well as you say it's a triptych and it's not known whether this was intended as an altarpiece but the general thinking is that the fact that the subject matter especially in the central panel where, as you say, people are getting up to all sorts of things which one wouldn't normally see depicted in a Renaissance church or a church today, indeed, makes it unlikely that it was made to function in a church or a monastery but was instead commissioned by a lay patron. I mean, if I was a monk in some sad Renaissance monastery, I would certainly look at the Garden of Earthly Delights and think I could be floating in a nice pool somewhere having a drink why should I be in this monastery? So it's obviously exploring the concept of decadence, but also of paradise lost. There's a lot of disagreement about whether the central panel in particular is a depiction of paradise lost. We'll never get back to this because we've become so dissolute, or whether it's a moral warning. Saying that we've, if you engage in the activities in the central panel, you're going to end up in the right hand panel, which is hellish. And as you say, has a terrifying Eggman and a bird eating people and lots of things that you certainly wouldn't want to encounter for eternity.
1: So, I mean, that's very interesting because it's either saying that the central panel is as things should be we should be living in that paradise or that that's what led to the panel on the right and i'm tending to think that given the dominance of the church in this period it would probably have been the latter interpretation that the artist would have been intending
0: well as we say it wasn't necessarily made for a church setting and although I of course agree with you that the church was dominant in this period and that's obviously very clear through the fact that there is a hell depicted and that the whole story does start with a uh, God and Adam and Eve on the left-hand panel, which also includes, by the way, a little picture of a cat-like creature carrying a mouse-like creature. So, we can't have a podcast where we don't mention cats, of course. So, obviously, there are religious themes here, but private patrons ordered a whole lot of different things for different reasons. That's also one of the reasons why there are so many pictures of nude women. Not all of those were made just for decoration, they were made for the male gaze, which I know is a phrase that you. Love to hear discussed.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're veering back towards one of the familiar themes of feminism. Okay, so it's it's on that account, it's secular art, which therefore didn't need to conform to ecclesiastical moral codes. So it could conceivably be that the central panel is something that is regrettably lost. But still, at the end of the day, you've got to progress to the third panel. So it's a it's a pretty um, pessimistic trajectory, isn't it?
0: I guess so. But typical for that time, I suppose. Um, but it's very it is nonetheless very dense with meaning. He uses symbols which are, which we don't have time to discuss all of now, but ranging from. Uh, alchemical themes to astrological, folkloric ideas, which can surely only have been drawn from his subconscious as well. So, as you say, it is very dense with meaning and with figures. But the point that I also wanted to get to with this is that this sort of style was also followed, you know, we talked about this chain of artists then by Peter Bruegel, the elder. In this painter, in this painting, De which is also quite crazy but very hellish. There's no garden of earthly delights here.
1: No, and just before we get to that, I what a, the other thing that struck me, apart from the overall tone, was. The skill, the undoubted skill of the artist in painting such detail, it it almost reminded me of one of those Where's Wally pictures (laughs) where you had to find Wally in a playground or uh, at a train station or perhaps those cartoon uh, pages of the Saturday newspaper that we used to do together when you were small and you had two apparently identical pictures and you had to spot the differences between them, which I myself sometimes found challenging. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's obviously a, a picture which was designed to be studied in great detail and talked about. So you could imagine perhaps it was a talking point in a, a patron's hall and his guests would talk about and and hypothesise about what was going on.
0: Well, it's also when it's closed, because you can fold this trick. Uh, on the outside, it shows the earth during creation, but not in a very engaging or interesting way It's typical image of the earth, they think, on the third day of creation based on what's shown there compared with the book of Genesis. But you can imagine the scene, as you say, of this patron having people visiting him, maybe like Croesus with Solon visiting, saying – look at all of my artwork, look at this, and from the exterior, people would say, oh, you know, nice, but it's not that good. But then he unfolds it, and it's this crazy, dense, detailed work. And as you say, it is very skilled. I mean, you can look at the figures, like there are a couple of figures encapsulated within a bubble, and the skill that that shows to paint that translucency.
1: Yes, I I noticed that particularly. It looked almost like two little people inside one of those glass Christmas balls. Yeah. Put on a Christmas tree.
0: So you can imagine the social setting for it as well. Um, But to get back to this Peter Bruegel piece, you can see the echoes of that dense style, particularly looking at the right hand panel of the Hieronymus Bosch mirrored here. Very hellish scene, people fighting in the foreground. Uh, again, another egg-like figure being cracked open, creatures climbing up the mast of ships, figures of all sorts of sizes, a hellish mouth spewing objects and people.
1: And uh, this central, and there's one man that looks like half a beetle in the bottom left-hand corner, huge military conflicts going on and then in the middle of it all this female warrior with a sword and even almost looks like a basket of kitchen cut- um, pans and and things like she's halfway through preparing dinner but thinks she'll go out and slaughter a few people striding very purposefully through this terrible landscape so I can definitely see the connection between the Bosch and the Bruegel. And I, I had no idea that Bruegel was after Bosch. I thought it was the other way around. But obviously this Bosch started a trend in, in horror art. So maybe this picture should have an M15 plus rating.
0: Yeah, maybe. Uh, I actually saw this at the Museum den vandenberg in Antwerp a couple of weeks ago. And where it's displayed is a very dimly lit Room. It's a very dark, uh dark colored wall behind it. So the way that it's lit up is also very effective. And you can imagine because the dark room, this focus on this horrific image. And you can imagine as well in the Renaissance with flickering candlelight around how immersive it would have been.
1: Yeah, perhaps I should have had a trigger warning for people who, who are <laughs> frightened by this sort of thing. <laughs>
0: But to bring it back, so we've got all of this art historical background. So what do we now make of Shaw? I mean, he's got also this very highly detailed painting. And what he's apparently doing is reimagining that exchange between Croesus and Solon as this nightmarish display of ostentation with these grotesque reminders of the inevitability of death. You pointed to some of these memento mori, so reminders of death before, like skeletons. Some of them are also holding up champagne bottles as if they're trying to get the last little drops, which really gives you the sense that this is the end of the party, that everything's wrapping up, and that despite the exotic surroundings and the luxury I mean, you have cornucopia spilling over, ostentatious displays of jewels, including some of the UK crown jewels, peacocks. That's a direct reference to the story of Croesus. Outside, you can see in the background the shard from the London skyline, so a reference to maybe corporate luxury. You can see how it is a kind of gross display of
1: wealth. Yes and something that I I've only just noticed is one of the skeletons is drinking wine but the wine is running right through the skeleton it seems um and the general atmosphere is is one of this the the, the party is is winding down in death there's a famous story by Edgar Allan Poe about a group of noble people who in an attempt to shut themselves off from the bubonic plague repair to this castle and they're having a riotous time but unknown to them someone who's infected walks through the hall and they're gradually struck down so that that came to mind as well just in relation to the effectiveness of the par- parallel with Croesus and Solon. I can definitely see it in architectural terms because of the arch within an arch. But are we to assume that the skeleton in the middle is talking to the one on the right? Because they don't seem to be engaged in conversation. Well, the Um, skeleton
0: in the middle is really looking at the viewer. So my reading of it is more that here where we, the viewer, are almost put in the position of potentially Solon. So here we have Croesus showing his wealth and ostentation to us and the image asks us what is our reaction to that.
1: Okay, so we, we take the place of Solon and so the skeleton's saying, what do you think? <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're saying, where's your damn peacock? Show me
1: the feathers." <laughs> yes, <laughs> Well, I I would say to the skeleton, you know, if you had the opportunity, I wouldn't have lived so hard.
0: (laughs) But I I guess one final point on the form of this is that, aside from being highly detailed, you can't necessarily see it so well in the digital version, but it is also rhinestone-encrusted, and the whole thing is executed with these pools of enamel and metallic industrial paints, which are really meticulously applied. In some cases, with a porcupine quill, so you can imagine how fine that is. And motifs, wow. and this is also talking more generally about Shaw's work, are often outlined in gold, which is a similar technique to cloisonné, which is found in early Asian pottery, which is one of the many sources of inspiration to Shaw. We've been focusing on. Western art history here because of the reference in the title, but he does draw from across art history and you can also see motifs which uh, make reference to that, like the bonsai tree, which bonsai is another very meticulous art. So he's, I guess, making a more general comment about humankind as a whole and the luxury that we live in and the amount of things that we produce and live with.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think though, if if I was asked to choose if I had to have one of these pictures on my wall, I'd probably go back to the original Croesus and Solon rather than 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 this uh derivative version. <laughs> and indeed and indeed in preference to the Garden of Earthly Delights or um toler greater. So yeah, I think this is a, a thumbs down picture because I i couldn't tolerate walking to a room and seeing that little skeleton gesticulating to me and asking me what I think about things. Why, be you can't crazy.
0: handle the you can't handle the moral pressure or what? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh well it's my I guess final question about it to you since you've already told us what you'd prefer. What do we think Shaw adds here? based on this very long artistic lineage?
1: Well, he adds modern motifs to a Renaissance model. So he makes it readable for the modern audience who mightn't be as affected by the Bruegel or the Bosch picture as they would be by his. I, I would imagine that contemporary audiences would probably spend more time looking at this picture because it's closer in time to them, and in particular not, not only because of the modern motifs but the material which with, with which it is made.
0: I think you're very right there because looking at the painting of Croesus and Solon, while if you really have time and know the background to understand that it is a, image of luxury to us and we're so surrounded by material goods and visual materials it doesn't look very luxurious no this image does so to have the same impact we now need more so yeah
1: Perhaps his finishing touch actually should have been to put a little mobile phone in that hand of the skeleton because that would have really made it contemporary and he he could almost be saying, look, I've got a version 11 of the phone.
0: (laughs) But it might be too easily outdated. You know, a year later, Apple's come out with two new models, so no longer jealous. Uh, Do you have any advice for us to sum up?
1: Yeah, well, the reference that you made earlier to the seven de- deadly sins caused me to examine my conscience <laughs> to see if I was guilty of any of them. And the only one I can think of which takes Oh, you're back very away,
0: humble, aren't you? Only
1: one no, well, the only one I can I can think of at the moment or that I'm willing to disclose on a podcast is one that actually comes back way back in the in time for me when I was five years old. And there was this toy shop in Salisbury, as it then was, Harare, as it now is, um, which we used to visit. And I, I loved the toys there, but there was one in particular that I liked, which was this little submarine with a deep sea diver who was tethered to it and could be put inside it, I think. And I had to, uh, I was invited to a birthday party. And so my mother said, Well, I'm going to take you to town this afternoon and we'll choose a toy for this other boy. And when we went to the toy shop, she said, oh, I'm sure he'd like that. Let's get that for him. And it was the submarine. And, you know, I felt incredibly unjust, it it, to be incredibly unjust that he should be bought this toy, which I had long wanted. And so that was, I must admit, a manifestation of envy. And I suppose it goes to show that even an only child can experience envy, (laughs) even if you haven't got a sibling to be envious of.
0: Well, that seems, yeah, maybe your mum was trying to teach you a moral lesson by showing you this garden of earthly delights in the form of the (laughs) toy shop to deny it to you.
1: Yeah, I know. It's uh, a bit tantalising, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, maybe that boy, now an old man like you, is listening (laughs) to the podcast (laughs) and will feel like he is Croesus. So you never know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode. We hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you have, it would be fantastic if you could rate, review and follow our podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at ArtDadPod, where you can see images of the works we've been discussing. And we hope that you'll be able to join us again next week. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.